As I mentioned before, it is a fellowship meal after church today. We trust that everyone uh, can uh, make it next door for the meal. I think what we're going to do, I'll give directions now, is that we are going to give thanks for the meal as well as the time together in God's Word right here and just uh, trust that that prayer and that blessing will hold till we get next door and eat the food. I think God can handle that. And uh, and also just a reminder to our kids, you know, there's a lot of the norovirus going around right now. So if we, uh, if we can especially direct our kids and ourselves, hand sanitize, wash our hands, because we share common utensils in putting the food on the tray or put it on your, on your plate and then go wash your hands, it's up to you. But it's going to be a wonderful time. I don't want to scare anybody away with that, but uh, it's going to be uh, just a wonderful time of fellowship. Seek to set with somebody that maybe you haven't got to know yet well that. You know, it's so easy to set with those that we're familiar with, the same people every time, uh, but uh, find somebody that you haven't had a meal with before and spend that wonderful time with them. Well, today we are starting a new series of messages. The last month and a half, we have been blessed by uh, focusing on Jesus, which is always a blessing, and learning more about him by the names and titles that he's referred to, especially those that he applies to himself in Scripture. One of those names, if you remember, was the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. And following that, it got me thinking of a study that, you know, I did as a young person once. I, I love to look at imagery in Scripture because some of us, we, we learn by hearing. Others are visual learners. Others, you have to do it. You, you teach me to do it. And once I can do it with my hands, I learn that way. We learn different ways. But as a visual learner, Jesus, remember, lived in a time when many people, uh, they just heard him speak and he would paint pictures with his words. We often call his great teachings the parables. In fact, in our kids' club on Thursday night, uh, we're talking about the parables of Jesus. This last week was his story of the Good Samaritan. And these wonderful visual images, we see them not only in the ministry of Jesus, but throughout the Old and the New Testament. And there are certain images that were meaningful to the people and much, much important teaching is 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 conveyed through those images. For instance, God's people coming out of Egypt and uh, through the 40 years in the desert and then into the Holy Land, they were largely, many times, they were shepherds. They were they practiced animal husbandry. They had oxen. They had cattle. They had sheep. They had goats. The goats were primarily for dairy and the sheep were for food and for wool. And, and the, they used those so importantly, not only uh, for sustenance, but as part of their religious life as well. So shepherds and sheep are a theme. Think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. They spoke in that language. But as well, they were farmers. They weren't just hunter-gatherers. They didn't just wander, uh, follow the animals in the fields. They settled in settlements and civilization, and they practiced agriculture, something we're familiar with in this part of the world as well. You can talk to people in agriculture. You can talk to farmers and use illustrations from that world, and they understand each other. It's almost like shorthand. But one of the areas of agriculture, and we see a number of key areas in the Old Testament, and all of these areas are seen as important, and they're used to convey scriptural truth. And one of them that we referred to as Jesus did, I am the vine, because everybody in those days understood vineyards and vines and grapes. 
and wine. They understood all of that process and they understood how, how it happened, what took place. It was part of their lives. And I looked at scripture and I see so many things that use the vineyard to teach truths. Truths about, for instance, uh, first fruits, giving to God. We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. Uh, truths about the wrath of God, the grapes of wrath, the wine press of God's wrath. Uh, truths about injustice. Remember King Ahab and Jezebel. Their greatest injustice is when they stole a man's vineyard. All of these important truths in Scripture are conveyed in the teaching of the vine and the fruit of the vine. And as we do that, I always, uh, as I, I enter into that, I, I do it with trepidation because it's one of those areas of life that taken in moderation can be a blessing, but can so easily in the sinful fallen world be used for ill, just like food. We need it, but abuse of it can become an idol, an addiction, gluttony. It can become a real problem. Human sexuality, within the confines that God has laid down as a blessing, not only does the human race continue and it's a necessity, but it's a great blessing, a level of intimacy between a husband and a wife that is, is, is precious in such a way that it, it's a reflection of the intimacy, Jesus says, between Jesus and his bride, the church. It's a beautiful thing, but taken out of bounds and, and in the wrong way, it becomes, it becomes a curse on society and it becomes addiction and it tears us down. Anything good can be taken too far or used in an abusive way. And the vineyard is no exception. In fact, it's to such an extent that many Christians and people of faith ignore these passages or skip over them or they, they just seem awkward to us and they shouldn't because the Bible includes myriad images and truths from the vineyard. And we'll see some of those leading up to the Easter season in the weeks ahead. But before we begin, we have to address the elephant in the room and do it not in a judgmental way, but do it in a reflection of what God's Word teaches us in Scripture, the truth of it. Proverbs 20, for instance, teaches that important truth, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The foolishness that alcohol can bring into a life. Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. And let's be clear, in the ancient world, wine and beer were pervasive. There were no such things as strong liquor in those days, the distillation of spirits to raise the level of alcohol to ungodly heights as you see in hard liquor. That didn't come around until medieval ages, much more recently. But from ancient times, all it took was some grain left in a grinder to make bread and a little bit of rainwater on it and fermentation takes place, boom, beer was discovered. Beer is much more ancient than, than the cultivation of, of the vines and vineyard. In the ancient world, they understood that you take too much of these substances, whether beer or wine, and they did something to you. You'd be happy for a little while, a little more. You'd be angry, a little more. You'd be stupid and foolish and fight, and then something's going on. So they often saw it almost as a spiritual thing that you would be taken over by 
a god of some type. That's why in the ancient world, people like Dionysius, he was the god of wine. Bacchus, all of these, there was, there was uh, alcohol often used in religious ceremonies because they could tell it had a, a psychoactive properties to it that the ancient world didn't fully understand. Oh, but the Bible teaches the truth. Too much of it, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. And so because of this, I, I, I want to begin this series with a cautionary tale. I call this message, Handle with Care. When it comes to alcoholic drinks, especially in a world where we produce distilled drinks at a much higher level of alcohol, we understand that alcohol as a drug, I've never been comfortable with people talking about drugs and alcohol. <laughs> it's because our drug of choice, alcohol, somehow we, we, we say, well, it's not like other drugs, but it is. It has medicinal properties. It can be used in, in wonderful, wonderful ways that would be beneficial to mankind. But taken too far has extraordinarily damaging consequences as well. My drug of choice is an alcohol. I'll be honest with you right up front. It's caffeine. <laughs> I've had three cups of it already this morning. But imagine if I'd had three big cups, my big coffee mugs full of wine, this sermon would have a very different tone to it, you know? It would be, it would be something else. So let's, let's keep things in perspective and look just in, in a, in a positive way at what the Bible actually teaches about the fruit of the vine as wine. Let's look at some of these things. First, scripture teaches not only grapes, plants, but wine itself is a part of God's creation. It's part of God's good creation. Just as God intended grains to be the foundation of life and provide bread, grains, God knew about bread when He created grain, so God knew about wine when He created the vines. And we see that reflected throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament. In fact, those three areas, those cornerstones of life and sustenance in the ancient world whether it was uh, grain, which is bread, or oil, which comes from the olive tree and was a necessity in life, in cooking, and as an important source of calories in a world always on the verge of starvation, or the vine, which produced wine, which had medicinal properties and was just uh, so important to the world, grain, oil, and wine. When they talked about God blessing a society, they had grain, oil, and wine in abundance. That's what was taught. It doesn't speak about abusing any of those substances. It just talks about their place. For instance, Psalm 104. Speaking of God's provision for mankind, the psalmist writes, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. It's God's intention with these plants. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil that makes his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. There's all three of the big ancient ones, oil, wine, and bread. They were all gifts from a loving God, plants to sustain life in the ancient world, which was a hard world. 
Now, there's, a, there's an instance where plants are talked about and, and, and seen in a very positive way, but it's one of the stranger, more unsettling portions of the Old Testament. We all remember Gideon. We love the Gideons who give out testaments until school districts have turned against them. But Gideon himself, remember, he was one of the judges in the book of Judges, and following his death, leadership of God's people fell to his sons. He had a lot of sons. He had 72 sons. And so they acted in the area as judges over the people till one of them, the second from the youngest, in fact, he was not one of his true-born sons. He was the son of a concubine. His name was Abimelech, common name among leaders in the old world. And Abimelech says, he went to the people of Shechem and he says, do you want 70, 70 sons of Gideon to rule over you when I'm a hometown boy? How about you make me your king and I'll get rid of those brothers of mine. And they agreed with him. And so Abimelech engineered the murder of 70 brothers, his 70 brothers, sacrificed them, human sacrifice. Only one brother escaped, the youngest. His name was Jotham. And he shows up and spoils the party at his brother's coronation. There in Shechem, between Mount, uh, uh, right at the foot of Mount Gerizim from the Old Testament times, Jotham shows up and he shouts to the people of Shechem and he tells them a story. It's like Aesop's fable, almost like a parable, but he tells them a fable that one day the trees decided they needed a king. And he goes through and he says, the trees offer the kingship to all of these wonderful plants. First, they, 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 they go to the, uh, they go to the olive tree. And the olive tree, they say, you know, why don't you be our king? And, uh, the olive tree says, you know, I, I'm too busy producing olive oil, which is a blessing to gods and men. And then they go to the wonderful sweet fruit of the fig tree. They say, please, fig tree, be our king. And the fig tree tells all the trees, no, I'm too busy producing this sweet fruit that is such a blessing to people and then it says they go to the vine verse 12 says then the trees said to the vine come and be our king but the vine answered should i give up my wine which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees so it shows wine was perceived as a blessing as a gift from god the term gods and men was something in the fable that he went and it showed that wine was used in many religious ceremonies, including uh, as drink offerings in the practice of the tabernacle and later the temple. Well, the story goes on, and if you're not familiar with it or it doesn't spring to mind, finally none of the good trees want to be king and they turn to the lowly thorn bush. <laughs> and in Jotham's fable, that's referring to his brother who killed all of his other brothers, Abimelech. And the thorn bush, he didn't produce wine or figs or olive oil. All he's good for is to start a fire as kindling. So the thorn bush burns up all the trees. They got what they were looking for. They got a king, but they didn't count on the destruction that followed. And the Bible says this was laying a curse on the people of Shechem, and it came to pass that they were punished for supporting and engineering the murder, the murder of all of those, all of those sons of Gideon. But the trees were seen as positive and the, the vine was seen as a blessing and vineyards were highly valued in that society. But they always knew that it came with a price, that the alcohol in the wine 
though it had many positive values, it was easily abused and caused problems and pain for people. Well, using it even in a communion service became an issue because over time uh, in the practice of the church, people began to understand that certain people who were addicted to alcohol became alcoholics that even if they'd been off on the wagon or off the drug for years and years, they could relapse even through a communion that served wine, that little sip. And so I've told this story before, but a, a dentist who for health reasons couldn't practice dentistry, a man named Thomas Welch. Look at this picture of him. He looks like an Old Testament prophet. Thomas Welch and his son Charles, they used this new process called pasteurization to heat up grape juice so that it wouldn't ferment. Killed the acetic bacteria that causes fermentation, which consumes the sugars, produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. You know how fermentation works. But they produced a grape juice that remained grape juice and didn't just naturally turn into wine as it's given to do. And they were able to keep it and use it in Methodist churches because they were strong Methodist men. The first Welch's grape juice was known as Welch's non-alcoholic sacramental wine. But that, that name didn't stick because it, it was too, too long for the label, I guess, you know. But Welch's then took over the world by storm. It was one of the first great uses of pasteurization after milk. And it was a great blessing. But because of that, you know, we've often discussed well you know and i come from a generation where we didn't believe that jesus wine that he made or any of that had alcohol in it and we often you know the we leaned on teachers who would seem quite learned they would quote roman sources that they could keep grape juice from turning into wine they quote Pliny and another roman his name was carmnella and Pliny and carmnella you know i was curious about that so i looked at what they actually taught they taught nothing about maintaining grape juice without alcohol that was impossible for them as it was before pasteurization what they were talking about was limiting the fermentation so that the grape juice would only become wine because that's only part way through the process it eventually becomes what becomes vinegar the bible talks about that remember that's what they gave jesus before he shouted his last words on the cross was sour wine. It was wine that has gone from grape juice to wine to vinegar. And that wet Jesus' throat enough to tell the world that it was finished. Well, those sources reveal that it was difficult. It was difficult to keep wine from becoming vinegar. In fact, Plato, the Greek philosopher, once said, we spend so much time working on wine and trying to keep it from becoming vinegar. Why don't we just use nature's best drink, water? <laughs> Plato was, was a teetotaler. He didn't drink wine. He thought it, was, it affected the mind. It just did him no good, so he steered off it completely. We know that a little bit of wine might have positive properties. Though lately scientists have been downgrading how much might have a healthful benefit, how little bit of red wine a person in a week could consume that would have positive impacts. And we know the incredible social damage done by abuse of alcohol. And the Bible's in step with that too. Something that can be a blessing taken too far out of its place can become a curse 
and do great damage. So while the Bible recognizes the fruit of the vine and vineyard, and even in its place, wine can be part of God's blessing, it also, the Bible condemns drunkenness. It condemns drunkenness. And I ask myself, well, why? What are the reasons? What's, what's really behind it? It's one thing just to scold people and say, no, don't do this. But the Bible is very clear. There's reasons while being out of your mind and affected by a drug can be harmful, not only physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, relationally, but spiritually as well. For instance, one of the reasons the Bible condemns drunkenness, we see it in Isaiah chapter 5, and that is that it deadens not only the physical senses, but it deadens us spiritually as well. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Oh, they have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines, flutes, and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the works of His hand. Those who go too far and abuse alcohol, the last thing in their stupor is the things of God. In fact, it's one of those interesting little bits in the book of Leviticus. The priesthood, they weren't forbidden from drinking wine. In fact, they used it, as I said, in drink offerings and so forth. But if it was their turn to serve in the tent of meeting, in the holy place, they were forbidden to touch wine. They went in completely sober, completely clear-minded. In fact, to transgress that was punishable by death. It deadens spiritually. Proverbs 23. Oh, the book of Proverbs is so wise, practical, and down to earth. It tells us something that we all know in our hearts is that it leads, it leads to pain and sorrow and shame. Proverbs 23 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine. Who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. It goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake. It poisons like a viper. It verses go on. It's incredible if you haven't read it. An uh, uh, amazing description of drunkenness. It says you can't stand upright. You're like on a ship in a storm. The ground is solid, but you're not. You stumble and fall about, and it leads to just a devastation in your life. This is one area where it's not just a pastor on his hind legs telling people how to live their lives. We are in complete agreement with the secular world. The drug that causes the most destruction in the world is alcohol. We live in an age, for instance, we talk a lot about the opioid crisis. And it's a terrible thing. And we blame people like communist China for all the fentanyl that's crossing the border, the, un, the unguarded southern border of the U.S. But you know... Deaths directly related to alcohol, drunk driving, which kills proportionately a huge amount of children compared to adults. 
the destruction and domestic abuse and, 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 and the health, the, the, the destruction of the liver and so forth from alcohol. Take the opioid deaths and double them. And you're starting to get in the ballpark of the number of people that alcohol kills every year. But we just take it for granted. We love the latest uh, Budweiser commercials at the Super Bowl. We think of the Mexican drug cartels for, for crystal meth or fentanyl. We don't think twice about Anheuser-Busch or Seagram's or good Canadian companies like that who make an enormous amount of money selling alcohol within its proper place it can have beneficial effects but it's one of those things that goes so far an american uh, governmental department they're called the niaaa <laughs> the national institute of alcohol abuse and alcoholism released a study recently that during the three years of covid lockdowns binge drinking problem drinking alcohol abuse has not risen it's soared it's up not five not ten it's up 50 percent in our society the segment of society that is struggling with alcohol and increasing faster than any others stay-at-home moms we colloquially colloquially call them wine moms soccer moms who like to unwind with a great big glass of wine which once you open the bottle, it's not going to stay good, so that, that glass of wine becomes the bottle of wine. And, and in studying this trend, I read the questionnaire that they gave to the people. Thousands, thousands of people answered it. And it's to see if they really, if alcohol is a problem in their lives. Like many people, it's, it's part of a good meal or it's a social thing. And it has no hold on them, but sometimes it becomes a problem becomes addiction, becomes an idol. Sorrow, pain, and shame, that's exactly what the secular questionnaire asks. It asks you to agree with a number of questions, 15 statements. Do you agree with them? Here's just a few of them. Yes or no? I have been unhappy because of my drinking. Yes or no? I have felt guilty or ashamed because of my drinking. This is secular Yes or no? I have taken foolish risks when I've been drinking. Yes or no? My family has been hurt by my drinking. Families are being devastated. And it's accelerated during COVID. And I'm not Carrie Nation, founder of Women's Christian Temperance Union, temp, you know, uh, with my little axe going out and breaking kegs of beer. I understand the world we live in and people are going to make their choices. But we also need to understand the problems that it causes when something is taken out of its place and goes too far. It leads to sorrow, pain, and shame. Shame. And this is in a secular study. That's what they feel. It becomes the center of our life. People who are starting to struggle with it and slipping into addiction, it just begins to take over areas and time that it has no right to. No right at all. Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, He's warning us that the day of the Lord is coming. That judgment day is coming. And He says, how you live your life should always be in light of coming judgment. That you're going to face God someday. 
He says, unfortunately, people get caught up in other things. And eternity and spiritual things are no longer important to them. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day, the day of the Lord, judgment day, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. I'll go a little further. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. The Bible says be sober. That means be sound of mind. And they understood that in a world where wine was common, though it wasn't the everyday drink for people in the Bible times, we often exaggerate that. It was, it was more often around festival times, celebrations, wedding feasts, the Passover, important times. People couldn't afford to have it every day unless they were very wealthy. And even when they did, as we saw from Proverbs, they didn't drink it straight. It says, be careful when the wine is red in the cup. They always diluted it. Now to people today who are wine connoisseurs, they would just be amazed at that. But most commonly, one part wine was mixed with two or even more commonly three parts water. And again, it served a wonderful purpose in killing all the parasites in the water. It made it safe to drink. Remember Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 tells Timothy, Timothy, don't just drink water, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent illnesses. As we look at that, most likely Timothy was suffering from dysentery and things, waterborne illnesses. And so Paul tells him, you know, you've probably taken a vow and sworn off wine, but he says for your sake, physically, he says fulfill your vow and then use a little bit of wine with your water. Again, wonderful medicinal properties that can go too far. And finally, when it becomes not only the center of our life, it can become an addiction. And you notice when we're under the influence, when we're under the influence, it never grows us spiritually. It's always the, the sinful fallen human nature, as the Bible calls it, the flesh. It feeds the desires of of the flesh it gratifies the fleshly nature as paul says in ephesians chapter 5 therefore do not be foolish but understand that what the lord's will is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the spirit debauchery is an old-fashioned word for giving in to the sins of the flesh you don't make good decisions when you're under the influence you never make decisions that move you toward the Lord, it's always away from Him. It's always the flesh and self that's being gratified. That is why the Bible condemns drunkenness. So many reasons. And there is so much in Scripture that speaks about this. I'm just touching on some of the high points. So with all of this in mind, summing it up, for Christians, self-control is the key. It's no, it's, it's no accident that one of the truths of the vineyard that the Bible uses, the imagery of, of the vine, is the fruit of the Spirit. And what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? It's self-control. It's important for us as believers 
to be filled with the Spirit and have Spirit-led lives. Galatians chapter 5, reading at length the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. That is the flesh, literally in Greek, sarx, the flesh. They have crucified the flesh, the sinful nature. And what does it have? With its passions and desires. That's what's inflamed by abuse of alcohol. Fleshly, sinful passions and desires. Inhibitions disappear. Stupid things are done. Verse 25, Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Wonderful, wonderful advice. This is the key for we as Christians to live lives wisely. It's not saying that this is forbidden in Scripture because it's not. But it certainly needs to be used with caution, especially in a society that some of those positive things that it did in the past, cleanse our water, provide medicine, it was used not only internally, but topically. They noticed the early doctors, they say when you drink wine, it warms you. You feel that heat inside. Some of you who have had alcohol, you understand what that means. It feels warm. It's a false warmness, but they said you drink it, it's warm. You put it on your skin, it cools you because we know it's the evaporation of the alcohol. So they used it for people who had fevers. They washed them in wine, put it on their heads. It had so many things, but those things are in the past. Much of the benefits of the past we receive in different ways. But we still have the dangers that we have to be careful for. Again, when it comes to self-control, we ask, who's in control? Self-control for the believer is spirit control. The Lord Jesus, His indwelling spirit. Not living a life that that will grieve the spirit. As I said at the beginning, I like coffee. You know, I've never had a taste for beer or wine. Studies show that same National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism shows that in North America, only 15% of adults have never imbibed in any alcoholic drink. Only 15%. As a kid, I tasted some sometime. It was around. Never preferred it. Never liked it. Didn't like how it made me feel. But that's not the reason that I don't drink at all now. I don't drink, not about me, but about others. And what others may look at me as a pastor and and justify their behavior, I might cause someone to stumble, and I finish with that point. Don't let our freedom to drink or not to drink, to have wine with our meal, don't let our freedom become a stumbling block. Don't trip up somebody else. Be be aware of those around us. Are there people with addictions? Some families, alcoholism runs in a family. Some families, it gallops. Some people can't have a social drink. Some people can't have a single beer. They just can't. There's a problem with them. We need to be aware of people like that and when we're around them to be a good witness and not cause them to stumble. 
One of my favorite passages coming out of COVID, being gracious to one another and understanding how our actions and our words were affecting other people, was Paul's teaching on meat sacrifice to idols. It seems to have no bearing here, but it does. Remember in the early church, people really got uptight about what other people ate around them. You had Gentiles and you had Jews. The Gentiles loved their ham sandwiches and their bacon. The Jews, that was unclean. It offended them to be around it. And so in those days, you know, when, like, are you going to use your freedom as a Gentile believer and, and eat all of these non-kosher things, even if it's offensive to your Jewish brother? Well, an even bigger problem were people, the Gentiles, who came out of paganism. And part of that was their sacrificial system. Animals sacrificed in a pagan temple. And that meat was often sold in the marketplaces at reduced prices. And the Jews in the church, well, they weren't eating pork, but they loved a good deal. They'd go to the marketplace and get that. They would get that meat sacrificed to idols because they knew the idols weren't real. They knew there's... All, all, it's all a gift from a loving God, so they would enjoy their freedom. But then that caused their Gentile brethren to stumble. So here's Paul, who says, to the Jews, I'm a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. He's always thinking of others, not wanting them to stumble or be held back in their faith. And so to the church in Corinth, he writes some very wise words concerning meat sacrifice to idols and showing deference to people who have tender consciences in this regard. And let's be honest, some of us, that's just how we were raised. The fruit of the vine, it's got to be grape juice. Dr. Welch's non-sacramental wine is the best. (laughs) In the early days, they say, we want you to have the fruit of the vine, not the cup of the devil. That was an early Welch's slogan, you know? So, you know, they don't don't use that anymore, not recently. But uh, Paul showing deference, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, this is in how you eat, the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat? what's been sacrificed to idols. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now we say, well, that's meat. Yeah, I can agree with that. that. I understand those principles of caring for others and deference. But you know, the parallel passage to this from 1 Corinthians is also found in Romans 14. And here's what Paul says there. Romans 14, Paul says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. There, Paul includes wine, alcoholic drinks in that category. 
of paying attention to how it affects those around us. And it's not just people with addictions or weak consciences. We understand as adults, we're examples to our children. There's a lot of things go into this. We each need to judge for ourselves. But I just want to encourage you, don't let your freedom become a stumbling block for others. Having said all of that, we've now talked about what the Bible teaches. But in the weeks ahead, this will all be assumed, but we'll talk about the different uses of the vineyard imagery in Scripture. This, though, this is the world we live in. It's a very practical message, but it's not easy to apply it in each one of our lives. When I look at a passage like these last two, though, I always want to say, we are not doing this to please the legalists, those who think they please God by their lists of do's and don'ts. You're not there to please and live at the beck and call of legalistic Christians, but we seek to protect the vulnerable. That's what we are. We're very aware of that. And let's let that be our, let's that be our guide. All right. Now, just want to let you know in advance, there's no wine next door. We're not going to, there will be coffee and juice and so forth, but uh, we don't get to practice this right away, okay? So what do people think at home? <laughs> they watch this on YouTube. I don't know. But uh, let's let God just speak to this in this practical issue that our world is struggling with, the world is suffering from, but uh, we as Christians want to be uh, wise in this area. And now let's give thanks to God for this wonderful morning in His house. And as it continues to be a wonderful morning, as we continue to experience God's love through fellowship around the table, let's give thanks for the service and for the meal to follow. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the practical teaching of Your Word. Lord, so many things that have been you, been given by You as a blessing to this world have been twisted and taken out of, in the wrong way by mankind. Everything from the building blocks of life, food and drink, Lord, taken too far, they can become distract, destructive or hurtful. And Lord, we think of the many families and relationships that have been destroyed by the abuse of this drug taken in the wrong way. And Father, we are mindful of that. And Lord, I know around the world, many, many Christians, they have wonderful ministries in drug, alcohol, rehabilitation centers. And Lord, I just pray a blessing on them. But Lord, we are, we are here first and foremost to live our lives to please you. And Lord, we need to be careful though of not being stumbling blocks to those around us. But Lord, teach us wisdom in all of these areas. Help us to be good examples to one another and to our kids as well. And Lord, to make choices to even go without some time uh, Lord, for the sake of others. And now, Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for the time of fellowship to follow. Thank you for each one who has prepared part of this wonderful meal. I pray a blessing on them. And for each one of us, Lord, as we share the love of Jesus and break bread around the table. Bless the meal and the fellowship to follow. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, not linger. Let's get our coats and head right next door for the fellowship meal. Amen.